0: In this chapter, Job responds to the first speech made by his friend Eliphaz. Now I say Job responds, but in truth, the speeches of Job and his friends don't always correspond in the way that we might expect. Uh, This isn't a rational debate. This is a man on fire being lectured by a watching crowd. So some of what the burning man says corresponds to questions and critiques coming from the crowd, but some of it is just the loud, moaning, pathetic bleating of a wounded animal. Add to that the fact that sometimes it feels like the friends are speaking more to the crowd, whereas Job is speaking to God or just shouting into the air, and you have all the ingredients of a fairly chaotic conversation. And that is certainly the case here. There is not a precise correspondence between what Eliphaz said— and how Job answers here. In Eliphaz's speech, he attempted to make the point that in a moral universe presided over by a just God, we can make certain inferences about a person's character and behavior on the basis of what providence has served up to them. If there has been a radical turn in their fortunes, then that speaks to an obvious deficiency in their character. Job's life went from remarkably blessed to transparently cursed. That has to indicate something about the sort of spiritual or personal failing on Job's part that has been suggested. Therefore, the path of wisdom is to throw yourself on the mercy of the court. Accept God's verdict upon your life and make what reparations and compensations are deemed appropriate. Do that, and you will find yourself once again under the pleasant sunshine of the Lord's benevolent gaze. That was the sum and substance of Eliphaz's speech. But along the way, there was, of course, the implied criticism of Job's stubborn persistence with respect to his own personal innocence. The suggestion was that Job was reacting foolishly, stubbornly, and unbecomingly. Rather than flailing about in the dust and bemoaning the injustice of the world, why not just do what you need to do to fix the situation and return to the good graces of the Lord? That's the implied criticism behind the seemingly wise and orthodox counsel of Brother Eliphaz. Now, in the last episode, we spoke about how we ought to hear that counsel. We spoke about the limitations of proverbial wisdom, and we remembered Calvin's key. We remembered that the friends make a poor case well, while Job makes a good case poorly. We'll need to remember that again as we work our way through this speech. In general, Job's take on things is the better one. He sees further. His view of God is closer to being correct, And his sense that there must be more going on here than meets the eye is ultimately vindicated. And yet, not everything he says should be marked out for imitation and admiration. Some of what he says is understandable, but not commendable. Francis Anderson says here, God's eventual endorsement of Job's stand does not mean that every theological statement he makes is correct or that what his friends say is wrong. The matter is not as simple as that. So again, this text is asking a lot of us. It is demanding that we read slowly, carefully, prayerfully, and with discernment. So by God's grace, we will attempt to do that. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed, and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash. For the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass, or the ox low over his fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. Job is making the case here that all of his words and everything he has said has to be understood in light of the tremendous calamity that he has experienced. His world has come crashing down on his head, therefore his words have been rash. Job is saying are, are you finding my speech distasteful? Does it lack philosophical and theological precision? Well, you'll have to excuse me for that. I've just been crushed by giant providence. I may not be at my personal or rhetorical best at the moment. Job says that he's like an animal, making beastly noises in his distress. A hungry donkey brays over its empty manger And a distressed ox lows in the barn, hoping to attract the attention of the master. Do you judge the beast? No. You you take pity on him and you give him the food that he has need of. Am I any different, Job asks. I am a wounded animal calling out desperately for help, attention, and care. And of course, there's a lesson in there for us. People in pain should not have to defend everything they think or say or shout or swear in the moment of their personal anguish. Gracious, merciful covenant friends should let an awful lot of that stuff simply pass. There is such a thing as words for the wind. Don't grab on to what people say when they're processing that kind of pain. Don't pull it down out of the air and put it under the microscope and weigh it for its confessional value. Those are just words to the wind. That's, that's just the noise of a wounded animal. Let it go. D.A. Carson says here, When we come across those who for good reason are in terrible despair, we must cut them some slack. Dear conservative, evangelical, reformed-ish friends, let us hear that. Deeply wounded people don't need theological assessment. They need friendship, presence, and love. Theology can come later. It's okay every once in a while to lead with mercy. Job continues in verse 8, saying, Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. At this point, Job just wants to die. He sees death as a release from pain and suffering. But what's interesting, at least from our contemporary perspective, is that he never once contemplates committing suicide. Francis Anderson says here, so completely is God's sole power over life and death recognized that the thought of suicide as a remedy for life's ills never enters the book of Job, in contrast to the ancient pessimist and later stoic, and we would probably say in contrast to the modern sufferer as well. In the book of Job, God alone has the power of life and death. He kills and he makes alive, he wounds. And he heals, and there is none who can deliver from his hand. Job knows this, and so he calls out to God, asking him to take his life. Verse 10, this would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones? Or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resource is driven from me? Job here says that he would like to die so that at least he could know that he died in faith. He's worried that if this trial goes on much further, he will fall into error and unbelief. At this point, Job shifts his attention back to his friends and to the poor counsel they have given thus far. In verse 14, he says. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Let's just pause here and notice that friendship and compassion are understood as essential to authentic religion and piety. Job is saying, if you fail as a friend, you have failed as a follower of God. That's a fascinating insight. I'm not sure how many people today would make that connection, but Job makes it here. In verse 15, he begins to unpack an extended metaphor which basically expresses his frustration, his disappointment, the failure of his friends to bring him comfort. He had hoped that they would. He expected to find relief in their company, but their visit underdelivered. He says in verse 15 My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice where the snow hides itself. When they melt, they disappear. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The caravans turn aside from their course. They go up into the waste and perish. The caravans of look. the travelers of Sheba Hope, they are ashamed because they were confident. They come there and are disappointed. So like a stream bed, which you expect to hold water, or like a mirage in the desert, the visit of the friend's promised relief, but ultimately failed to deliver on that promise. Their conversation thus far has only added to Job's already overwhelming burden of agony and confusion. Verse 21, For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. Have I said, make me a gift? Or from your wealth, offer a bribe for me? Or deliver me from the adversary's hand? Or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? Job suggests here that the friends have balked at really entering into his situation and suffering because they're afraid of what it might cost them. That's why he asked them, Have I asked you for money? Am I looking for you to solve my problems or rescue me out of my calamity? That isn't what I need from you. So relax. What an incredible insight. And let's be brave enough to admit The validity of this insight. Let's acknowledge that sometimes we fear to get too close to hurting people because of of what they may want from us or need from us. We worry that if they grab onto us, they may pull us down with them. That is what Job is seeing in the eyes of his friends. Horror and a highly tuned instinct for self-preservation. It takes courage to be a friend and to come alongside people who are really hurting. In verses 24 to 30, Job tells his friends what he's actually looking for. He says, teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I've gone astray. How forceful are upright words. But what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? Job has basically the same theology as his friends, which is why he is so confused. He can't understand why he, as a righteous man, appears to be cursed. He agrees with their view of the world, but he knows he hasn't done what they suspect. So he asks them to think of something he hasn't already thought of. Help me figure this out. Show me what I'm not seeing But don't just react to the things I'm saying. I'm not entirely in control of myself. So let the words go to the wind. Just help me get to the heart of the matter. In verse 27, we see Job being a little immoderate. We remember that he is making a good case poorly. And we see that here in verse 27. He says, you would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. Basically, Job is saying, you're accusing me of doing wicked things, so I will accuse you. Accusations are cheap. I will match you. Groundless accusation for groundless accusation. Though I suspect that this little game won't lead us anywhere. Verse 28. But now, be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn. Let no injustice be done. Turn now. My vindication is at stake. Is there Any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? Do do you know something I don't know? Then speak it. Job here is asking for a restart to the conversation. Forget being offended at my words. Forget accusing me of ridiculous things you know I haven't done. Put that nonsense aside and let's just get down to business. Speak frankly with me. If you see something that I don't see, show it to me. You have to respect Job's endurance here. He's like a man who has come running out of a house on fire only to be smacked in the face with a baseball bat by his closest friends, but he's still standing. He is not given up on his friends, and he is not giving up on his God. D.A. Carson says here, For all that Job is prepared to argue with God, he is not prepared to write God off. Job is not the modern agnostic or atheist who treats the problem of evil as if it provided intellectual evidence that God does not exist. Job knows that God exists and believes that he is powerful and good. That is one reason why he is in such confusion. Job's agonizings are the agonizings of a believer not a skeptic. Job needs his friends, and Job needs the Lord, and he is not prepared to abandon either in his suffering. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the the end-of-the-word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have first-hand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca.